Imagine, if you will, a podcast. A podcast beyond that which is known to man. It exists in both fandom and discovery, in viewing and critiquing. My name is Matt Hurt. This is Anthology. Welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. If this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast exploring science fiction anthology storytelling during television's first golden age, beginning with The Twilight Zone. Each episode, I share my thoughts on an episode of this iconic series as a first-time viewer, as well as share some trivia about the episode. I then end each episode with a bonus review of a movie or show related to this week's episode. You can find more of Anthology at AnthologyPod.com. And if you want to contact me, you can like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod, where I post some stuff here and there. Uh, tweet me at obsessiveviewer, send an email to matt at obsessiveviewer.com, or call and leave me a voicemail at 317-762-6099. And if you like what you hear and want to support the podcast, please head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review. The more ratings and reviews I get, the easier it will be for people to find the show in the iTunes search results. It's funny, we actually, I actually got a review recently that remarked on my mispronouncing Serling's name in the first episode. And that's the second time that that's come up. And so I went ahead and just edited out that in the first episode. Um, so hopefully that won't be too, too much of a problem going forward. <laughs> But I do appreciate the review. It was a nice uh, four-star review, so I was very appreciative of that. I don't have the username available, but if you're listening to this episode, thank you. So today on the podcast, I'll be discussing The Hitchhiker. It's the 16th episode of Twi- The Twilight Zone's first season, and it aired on January 22nd, 1960 on CBS. The story was adapted from a radio play, so in lieu of a bonus review this week, I'm actually going to end the episode with the recorded performance of The Hitchhiker from Suspense Radio from 1942 featuring Orson Welles. So that'll be a nice change up, I guess. Okay, so before I get to the actual review, I have a couple pieces of uh, housekeeping to attend to uh, really briefly. Uh, first up is, if you've noticed on the site or on your podcast app, um, I got a new logo design for Anthology, and I'm really excited about it. And just so you know, if you use uh, like Pocket Casts as an app, uh, I think you have to like manually go in and go to the go to anthology, go to settings and go to, uh, refresh artwork and that should pop up. But I'm really excited about it. I got the logo, the, the cover art design from podcastdesigner.com. It was really cool. So if you, if you have a podcast and you're looking for artwork, check that out. And also I got some business cards designed for it with that logo. So that should be in soon. And also on that note, actually, if you are in Indianapolis and are going to be at Indie PopCon, stop by the booth that I'm going to have with my uh, co-host from uh, the Obsessive Viewer, Tiny. We're, we have a booth there. It's going to be booth 448. It's June 17th to the 19th. I'll, we'll have flyers and stickers and stuff like that and candy. So uh, check us out there. And finally, the last piece of housekeeping I have is I got an email from Greg from Spokane, Washington. Um, this is in response to my review of now is tomorrow. And he mentioned that, uh, I'll just, I'll just read part of this, part of this email here. Um, Robert Culp, who was, 
uh, Captain Blair in Now is Tomorrow, uh, starred in three terrific episodes of The Outer Limits, The Architects of Fear, Demon with a Glass Hand, and Corpus Earthling. Uh, the Architects of Fear is the third episode of The Outer Limits, and it's an episode people should start out with since the two preceding it aren't very good, nor do they embody the qualities that made Vintage Limits so outstanding uh, such as timeless themes, moody camera work by one of film's foremost cinematographers, Conrad L. Hall, which, slight note from me, um, I had no idea that he worked on The Outer Limits, so I'm really excited to get to that. Um, and also, The Outer Limits had a creeping dread hard to shake, even with the occasional practical effect, rich in unintentional hilarity. So, I mean, I plan on covering The Outer Limits far in the future after i finish the twilight zone so i'm really excited um to check it to check that out uh eventually um greg also writes i'd like to recommend two twilight zone-esque movies i think you'll like first is 1966's seconds also lensed by a giant of cinematography james wong howe Seconds explores a theme twilight zone has fun with on more than one occasion that of be careful what you wish for Seconds is actually the movie I'm going to review in next week's episode with the episode The Fever, um, strictly on Greg's recommendation. So look forward to that. And if you have any um, recommendations for Twilight Zone-esque movies of the era or shows or what have you, um, something that you think would fit as a bonus review for this podcast, feel free to email me at matt at obsessiveviewer.com and let me know because I will definitely be interested to check it out. Um, finally, Greg writes that he also recommends 1945's Dead of Night, which is a British anthology film that three later Twilight Zone episodes would draw heavily from. Uh, those episodes are Shadowplay, 22, and The Dummy. The flick is a bit of a mixed bag, much like the, tw- much like the Twilight Zone itself, though the last yarn as well as the wraparound story will floor you. So I think I'm going to cover that in the episode with Shadowplay, or failing that, then 22 or The Dummy. So I'll have a review of that in the future. Um, yeah, so thanks so much, Greg, for, for emailing in. And he also said that, uh, this episode, The Hitchhiker, is one of his favorites. So I'm looking forward to reviewing it now, which is my transition to tell you that I'm going to be reviewing The Hitchhiker right now. So, uh, as always, here is the episode summary for The Hitchhiker, which aired January 22nd, 1960 on CBS. And, if, uh, for whatever reason you're listening to this with the expectation of not being spoiled, sorry, but this episode is going to spoil The Hitchhiker completely, so, uh, feel free to pause the podcast, go and watch it on Netflix, uh, Amazon Prime, Hulu, wherever, and then come back and listen to the episode. The story begins with Nan Adams, whose vehicle gets a flat tire and has an accident on a cross-country road trip from New York City to Los Angeles. A mechanic puts a spare tire on her car, comments that he's surprised she survived the accident, saying, you, should have, you shouldn't have called for a mechanic, someone should have called for a hearse, and directs her to the nearest town to fix it properly. Just before she leaves, Nan notices a strange-looking man hitchhiking. Unnerved, she drives away quickly. As she continues her trip, Nan sees the same hitchhiker thumbing for a ride at several other points on her journey. She becomes increasingly frightened of him, and when she is stuck on a railroad crossing and nearly hit by a train, she becomes convinced that the hitchhiker is trying to kill her by beckoning her into into danger. She continues to drive, becoming more and more afraid, stopping only when necessary, but every time she does, the same hitchhiker is there. When she ends up stranded in New Mexico, she meets a sailor on his way back to San Diego from leave. 
Eager for protection from the hitchhiker she's been seeing, she offers to drive the sailor to San Diego herself. However, she is still paranoid about the hitchhiker, and when she sees him on the road, she tries to run him over. The sailor, who can't see him, begins to fear for her sanity and leaves her. In Arizona, Nan stops to call her mother. The woman who answers the phone says that Mrs. Adams is in the hospital. She had a nervous breakdown after finding out that her daughter, Nan, had died in a car accident in Pennsylvania six days ago when the car she was driving blew a tire and overturned. At this point, Nan realizes the truth. She did not survive the accident at the beginning of the episode, and the hitchhiker is not a man who wants her to die, but is rather the personification of death, patiently and persistently waiting for her to realize that she has been dead all along. Nan returns to the car and sees the hitchhiker sitting in the back seat through the reflection of the vanity mirror on the visor. I believe you're going my way, he, re- he inquires. So that's the synopsis for The Hitchhiker. And I have uh, just two actors to do in the talent rundown. The first of which is, of course, Inger, uh, Inger Stevens as Nan Adams. This is her first of two episodes of The Twilight Zone. She'll appear in season two's The Lateness of the Hour. In terms of... Uh, notes for her and everything. She had kind of a, a really tragic life that I'll go into in more detail when I, when I review the lateness of the hour. But for now, I just have a, a few trivia, uh, a few pieces of trivia to, to, uh, share about her. First of all, she was romantically involved with Bing Crosby during and after they appeared together in Man on Fire in 1957. The relationship never led to marriage because Stevens refused to convert to Catholicism. And when Crosby married Catherine Grant, who had converted a year or two later, Stevens was apparently devastated. Uh, Inger Stevens was also in the running, but lost out on the role of Holly Golightly in Breakfast at Tiffany's to Audrey Hepburn. And uh, Inger Stevens also won an, a Golden Globe in 1964 for her role in the tel- uh, TV show The Farmer's Daughter, in which she appeared in over 100 episodes. And uh, as the titular hitchhiker in this episode is Leonard Strong. This was his only episode of The Twilight Zone that he appeared in, and there isn't much online about him, but uh, the only piece of trivia I could find was that he's best known as the title character in this episode of The Twilight Zone, and as the recurring villain, The Claw, on Get Smart. And he's also known for playing the same role of the interpreter in two versions of the same story, uh, Anna and the King of Siam in 1948, and The King and I in 1956. Also, my uh, my only other piece of trivia is that IMDb says that he's a Euro-Asian-American actor, but according to a post on his message board on IMDb from 2010 by a user claiming to be his daughter, um, he's not. She says, his family came from the UK, mostly Wales. There is no Asian in our bloodline of which I'm aware. He played Asian roles primarily because he could. He was small, had olive coloring and could do the accents necessary. Also, during the early years of his movie career, the Japanese were in camps and could not work, leaving those roles to actors like my father and his Chinese and Korean friends. So that's that's interesting. And I can't imagine that someone would go online and lie about that for, for this particular uh, scenario. So um, I feel confident pushing that out there. So the writer for this episode is Rod Serling. It was based on the radio play The Hitchhiker by Lucille Fletcher. Uh, Fletcher got the idea in 1940 after driving cross-country with her first husband, Bernard Herman, who actually wrote the music for the radio play and whose music can be heard in this episode of The, of, uh, the Twilight Zone. Um, on, the tr- on the trip that inspired the uh, play, apparently, 
They saw an odd-looking man on the Brooklyn Bridge and then later on the Pulaski Skyway. Um, about a year later, her first daughter was born, and that's when she conceived the full story. Um, I guess she wrote most of it in like an afternoon while her daughter was taking a nap. And uh, Serling had heard the original radio play in 1941 on the Orson Welles show. It was a, performed again in 1942 on Philip Morris Playhouse and Suspense, which is the recording that I'm going to play later in this episode, um, respectively. In 1946, it was performed for the Mercury Summer Theater, and all of the productions of the radio play were performed by Orson Welles. That's all the notes I have for the writing on this episode. Uh, director is Alvin Ganser, who previously directed the episode What You Need. And after The Hitchhiker, there are two more that he directed, uh, both in the first season. They are Nightmare as a Child and The Mighty Casey, which that episode he co-directed with Robert Parrish. So we'll talk about him later in the season of Anthology. So now we've come to my feelings as a first-time viewer of this episode of The Twilight Zone. And I must say, just right off the bat, I really like the concept of this episode. Something There's something about this really uh, eerie trek across country that this woman is undergoing while being seemingly haunted by this man is just really just that premise alone is, is terrific and is really worth, uh, worthy of the twilight zone at least. But I must say that on my first viewing, the suspense really wasn't very effective on me. And I, I attribute that to just, I had such a problem with the voiceover narration that Nan had, um, throughout the episode. I, I understand that Nan is the sole character in the sole character for the majority of the screen time, really. But having her tell us the story as we watch it unfold, narrating her emotions along the way, it just felt like something that shouldn't have... Not shouldn't, but it feels like something that could easily have been omitted from the translation from the radio play. Um, and it kind of, at least on that first viewing, it seemed like a miss missed opportunity for Inger Stevens to give a truly compelling performance. And that's not to say that Inger Stevens didn't do a good, didn't do a great job in this episode because she is absolutely fantastic. There are scenes that she is just really, really captivating in, and there is a lot to the character that she brings out. But I just kind of feel like the kind of moody voiceover narration that's employed in this episode kind of made me a little made it a little hard for me to connect to the story on that first viewing i made my peace with it on repeat viewings and and actually found that i enjoyed it more when i had the full story and the full effect um going into it aside from those issues i really like that this episode kind of literally takes place in a twilight zone or a world or universe and in between life and death for Nan, at least I, I think that that's a really intriguing scenario or that's, a, that's a fun environment to play out in. Cause it's, I mean, it's a normal world and everything, but by the end of it, you realize that she's been kind of going through this way station universe kind of thing. That's my interpretation of it. At least I'll talk about that more as, as we go forward. But, um, after we're introduced to the hitchhiker though, the scene in the diner, um, where she's pouring over the maps and she asks the, the server if he, if, if they get a lot of, um, 
hitchhikers on the turnpike. And he's he's just going through saying like, no, no, we don't get a lot of hitchhikers. There's people would be crazy to hitchhike on there. Maybe before the maybe before the turnpike or in the toll booth and stuff like that. Um, that scene is really effective and really good um, development of her character and her and her uneasiness at seeing this hitchhiker because she goes into this whole she goes into this whole spiel where she kind of just doesn't really storm out of it, but she she kind of enthusiastically exits the diner. And it's especially haunting on repeat viewings because when she says that she's starting to hate the car, it's just it's really unnerving because you know you know the reason that she hates the car is because she would she died in the car. And I think that the subtext of that is that she feels this really this really negative force that's originating in the car and even probably uh and and the personification of a negative force of uh the hitchhiker himself so i just i really like that scene and i thought that that really brought out her character and her characterization and her growing unease with her situation and after that i i really again i really like the tension of the uh, railroad scene i thought that the there's this uh there's this very loud whir sound of of the train as it passes and it's it's terrifying it's it's actually really really frightening and the scene comes after nan tells the hitchhiker that she's not she's not heading west she's not going his way and when watching it with the ending in mind it really put an interesting spin on it because the hitchhiker isn't taunting nan as i thought that he would he sort of was in the first viewing nor is he chasing her which i also thought um he's just waiting for her and it really it really makes me appreciate the episode a lot more and after the railroad incident when she says that uh she sees now that he is beckoning her to her death that's i mean that that has such a such a such a spectacular double meaning because she's she's thinking that she's he's trying to get her killed by making her uh come onto the uh railroad tracks and get hit by a train but he's he is really um <laughs> beckoning her to her death because she's already died and he's he's beckoning her to the afterlife and i just love that piece of scripting in the, in that narration and like i said i i definitely uh grew to appreciate the voiceover narration but I don't know. Like I like her freak out in the diner, and I like the railroad sequence. Sequence, but going back to that first viewing of the episode, I just really felt like the tension didn't escalate as organically um, for me because of the voiceover narration. And like I said, I've made my I've made my peace with the narration on repeat viewings. It hasn't it hasn't disturbed me or bothered me, but. The premise of this podcast is I'm going through the Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer, so I'd be remiss if I didn't just voice my disconnect with the voiceover narration on my first viewing. Um, as for the actual hitchhiker, I, I like that Nan is the only person who can see him. And Nan's description of him as drab and mousy is is just perfect. And Leonard Strong's performance is really interesting. He has this creepy way about him. He seems kind of fragile and timid at times. And... At other times, it seems like he's unsure how to carry himself, which, oddly enough, adds to the strangeness of his character. And when you go back and watch it with the ending in mind, it seems he has more of a sympathetic 
uh, he's putting off more of a sympathy vibe than anything. It's like he's kind of a not necessarily comforting force, but he's patiently waiting for Nan to put the pieces together. And it seems like, and maybe I'm just reading a little too much into it, but it seems like there's more sympathy in him in that instance than anything else. Although when he does kind of pop up within the frame at, at first, he has this kind of sly smile on his face that kind of probably negates that entire thing. I didn't really like that um, element of the story when he just kind of appears in the frame. Um, it, it seemed kind of, I guess goofy would be the closest word for it. Um, but I mean, maybe it was effective for other people as being frightening, but I just thought that it was just kind of clunky and awkward. So, Back to uh, Nan and Inger Stevens' performance. On that first viewing, there was something about the progression of her fear that didn't really sit well with me. Um, for, for whatever reason, it just didn't really ring true. And I think maybe I was just hung up on the voiceover narration at, aspect of it. Because on repeat viewings, like I, I really had an appreciation for the progression of her fear and, and everything. But it just didn't sit well with me on the first viewing. And... I think that that really the scene where she wakes up the the guy at the service station like that that scenario didn't really didn't really seem that genuine to me uh, unless you just unless you just figure out like well okay yeah maybe the service station guy is just a complete ass and uh maybe he just sucks and he's he lacks empathy and everything but there's something in Inger Stevens's performance that's that's like she just showcases her like the character's complete vulnerability and and um how how she's just very much at the end of her rope. It's it's her performance when she wakes him up is just incredible and it's incredibly vulnerable. So I appreciated that even though I didn't really buy into the fact that this guy wouldn't I mean granted yeah, it's the middle of the night but I just didn't really buy into the fact that this guy would just let this woman stay stranded in the middle of nowhere. But I don't know, maybe I'm putting my own, uh, maybe I'm projecting my own, uh, response into it. Um, but I mean, without that, we wouldn't get the introduction of the sailor. And, uh, I thought that that was a good change up. And once he appears, I had no idea if he was going to be her savior or doom her. And, the way that the actor plays the character is a little awkward and uncomfortable, but still a little flirtatious. I thought that that I thought that that was really wonderful and and uh, a really wonderful display of the mystery of his intentions. I like I said I this is my first time viewing this episode and the first time going through the Twilight Zone, so I didn't know if maybe the sailor was going to be a bigger threat to her than the hitchhiker. I didn't know the ending ahead of time. So I didn't know what, what the through line for the hitchhiker storyline was going to be, but just, I had this inkling. There was something about the, um, sailor's performance that I should probably should have put him in the talent rundown. I apologize, but there's something about his performance that really made me just uneasy through, throughout everything. And, uh, that kind of culminates with the culmination of Nan's fear and confusion because she tries to run over the hitchhiker. And like, the, like I said, that's the culmination of fear and confusion that's been building throughout the episode. And like, that's, that's when the narrative kind of really clicked with me on that first viewing because it becomes even more tragic and terrifying when Nan basically offers herself to the sailor. Um, 
because he's he's freaked out. Like at that point, we realize as the audience that he's not um, he's not a malicious person who's going to try to take advantage of her or harm her in some way. He's just he's just excited to get a ride. And when he realizes that she is so emotionally unstable and so mentally unstable, he decides to cut bait. And when she just becomes more desperate, uh, like when she offers herself to the sailor in in 1960s TV terms, basically um, just talking about how she can, they can go out and she likes them and stuff like the, the sadness and desperation in her delivery. in that scene just really comes through spectacularly and makes me really, really so much more sympathetic to her situation and her problems. Like that's when, that's when everything clicked together for me in that first viewing and in subsequent viewings, it's probably my favorite point of the episode. It's just so heart wrenching. It also offers an interesting perspective on the episode or this part of the episode as it's unfolding. It's uh, it's just interesting to think of the hitchhiker storyline from the sailor's perspective um, because you can't blame him. Of course he's going to run off and leave her because she's homicidal. She's, she's from his perspective, she's crazy. She doesn't know. She doesn't, she's a liable to get him killed or him into some kind of legal trouble. And that's something that he doesn't really need. So shortly after that is the big reveal at the end that Nan has been dead this whole time. And it's a really good twist. And Stevens's final narration is, absolutely haunting and it's a great way to end the character's story and the character itself um it's just it's really creepy because she kind of walks out of the phone booth and she just says um the fear has left me now i'm numb i have no feeling and the way that she delivers those lines are so flat not not flat not i don't mean that in a negative respect but it's so it's just so calm the way that she delivers those lines and it's just it's haunting all the more and it's really impressive and also the music from bernard herman um in that moment is just brings it all together and i'll talk briefly about bernard herman's music also because the entire setup the the entire season or the entire episode arc um between bernard herman's music and the fact that she's driving a long distance it just immediately reminded me of psycho and i was delighted to find out that herman actually did the music for psycho because i just remembered marion crane's drive before she reaches the base motel it just it kind of reminded me of this um or that reminded i was reminded of that when watching this episode and also there's um one other thing i want to highlight about the episode is that the second act begins with kind of a fade into her driving through a tunnel and like, it's just completely black. And then as like the screen's completely black and then we see her exit a tunnel. And I thought that that was a wonderful visual metaphor. And I just, I just loved it uh, when I went back and saw it again, because it was, it was a really great visual metaphor. Like I said, her going through a tunnel and by the end of the episode, she's going into the afterlife. I thought that that was really well done. And a really good choice by the director. As for cultural subtext and, and things of that nature, um, I just want to mention that this is the first episode since the 16 millimeter shrine to have a female protagonist. And, uh, I thought that was, that was interesting. Um, I think here in, I think five or six episodes, we're going to have another female protagonist. I want to say Vera Miles is going to be in it. I can't remember, but I'm looking forward to that. And also, 
as far as timelessness, this the fear in this plot really even resonates today. I mean, it's a pretty straightforward plot of a woman driving across country being haunted by a figure. And I mean, just that premise alone is enough to um, resonate today. That premise alone resonates today is what I'm trying to say. A week before this recording, I drove down to Evansville to visit my friends. And it's just, it's really funny because I just had this episode in my mind the entire time down there because I'm just driving down. I live in Indiana, so I'm driving down um, the interstate and I'm surrounded by just nothing for long periods of time. And it just made me think of how desolate and alone Nan Adams was in this episode. And just, just the creepiness of that scenario really uh, worked its way into my drive down, uh, uh, my drive to see friends. So I really appreciated the episode for that. As for trivia for this episode, this is the only radio play to be adapted into a, into a uh, Twilight Zone episode, as I mentioned before. And Serling changed the character's name and gender. Um, in the radio play, the character was Ronald Adams. And uh, so Serling changed it, to, changed it to Nan. And he named the character Nan after his daughter Anne. Lucille Fletcher, who wrote the radio play, didn't like the change in gender, and she felt that it added nothing to the story and thought it minimized the story's dramatic effect. I don't know. From my perspective, I think that it was a it was a it was a good choice. Um, I I side with Serling on this because maybe this is a gender bias completely because it's going to sound horrible when I say it, but there's something about the vulnerability of a woman in this scenario that isn't that's that's more terrifying to me than than um, a middle-aged man because i think i think and i don't mean that to be like a gender misogynistic kind of kind of thing because that's not that's the farthest thing from the point that i'm trying to make but there's something about the vulnerability in inger stevens's performance that really comes through in a way that i don't think a, a man a, a man could really embody in a believable manner. It's a credit to Inger Stevens's performance, really, is anything. And I hope that that doesn't come across as as misogynistic at all, because I'm the furthest thing from that. But I'm going to stop talking about that because I feel like I'm just putting my putting my foot in my mouth. But uh, finally, for the last part of the trivia for this episode, is this is purely um, unsubstantiated. I have no idea if this is at all a reference to anything but the point in the episode where the sailor uh yells for the guy at the service station he says hey pop you got some customers out here um there's something about his inflection and i i like i said i don't i have no idea if this is intentional at all but it just immediately made me think of um earl holloman's uh delivery of almost an identical line in the beginning of where is everybody it just it made me feel like Maybe, maybe that was some kind of like little Easter egg trivia or something. I doubt it, but there was something in the inflection of his voice that really made me think Earl Holloman, particularly the scene in Where Is Everybody, where Holloman is uh, in the diner. Obviously, you see, he says, "You got some, cu- you got a customer out here," and he there's something about the inflection of the sailor saying that that really reminded me of him. So, my closing thoughts for this episode are uh, that the first time I viewed this the episode had a weak first half for me. It just felt uneven. And even though I liked the inclusion of the sailor, I, I was left kind of wondering if it makes sense within the context of the story and the logic of the world, because 
like I found myself overthinking the the scenario basically. So she's dead at the beginning. Is the rest of the episode her subconscious guiding her to the afterlife, or and and if that's the case, are the people that she encounters figments of her imagination? I I don't think so because they seemed they ju- they didn't seem like there was anything wrong with her at all. Um, my thought is that when she died, did her consciousness go into an alternate dimension or or something something like that where where she is in this like kind of purgatory where she's in this world where she isn't dead, but it's takes her to uh, realize that she's dead to really exit out of it and everything. That's probably the more likely scenario of, of what was intended with the story. And I mean, like I said, my first viewing was, was marred by just um, not really connecting to it because of some small issues I had. But the more I think about the episode and the more I watch it, the more I just am floored by it and, and really enjoyed it. It's a really chilling tale, really. It's, it's very, very eerie. And I like that there is enough of the hitchhiker to drive her to basically try to kill a guy. And I, I like that there's enough of that, but it doesn't dwell on the hitchhiker. It doesn't dwell on her trying to figure out what's going on with the hitchhiker. It's more about the fear that the hitchhiker breeds inside her. And it's about the horror that she's experiencing being like in the middle of nowhere and completely helpless. And I think that's what really makes it a more enjoyable episode than anything else, because it could have been that she's more antagonizing to the hitchhiker. Or she's, or she's, driven more crazy than anything but instead she is just consumed with fear and confusion and it comes across really well and i think that that is a credit both to the writing and to inger stevens's performance because she is just freaking phenomenal in this episode and while i kind of wish that they didn't do the voiceover narration um it doesn't depreciate her um performance at all because there are several points in the story where she is given her time to shine as, as a very dramatic actress in this, in this episode. And she just freaking knocked it out of the park. It was really, really good, really great. And, um, also it, it helped that this, uh, the story of this episode actually like the, it reminded me of one of my favorite TV shows of like the modern age. So I won't say what it is because it's a spoiler for the finale of it. But if you're a fan of television and you're aware of huge series that ended in uh, a few years ago, you'll probably be able to figure out what it is. But I I just appreciated the episode on that level too. So that's my review of the hitchhiker. And uh, before we move on to, uh, the rest of this episode and, and to the radio play. Um, here's a highlight from episode 163 of the obsessive viewer. It's a weekly movie and TV podcast. That I host with my friends, Mike and tiny over at obsessiveviewer.com. But I, I just love the direction they took everything. Um, nice. I, I, th- I think they aimed really high with the first season, um, introducing a character like Kingpin and mm-hmm. having the primary conflict to be with Kingpin. Um, I mean, it, it did make sense, but you know, that's, he's kind of the, He's kind of the grand. It's like doing a Batman, uh, doing a Batman series and having the whole first season be about him and his Joker. You know, it's right. it's very, it's it's high stakes in that respect. 
You can find The Obsessive Viewer on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and on ObsessiveViewer.com. And you can find the episode that you just heard a clip from at ObsessiveViewer.com slash OV163. Okay, so as I said at the top of this episode, in lieu of a bonus review, I'm going to just play the audio of Suspense Radio Theater, I think is the full name. I'm going to play the complete audio, which is public domain, so it's not, you know, copyright infringement. But the audio is from the 1942 um, performance of The Hitchhiker on Suspense performed by Orson Welles. Uh, Before I get to that, though, I want to just mention that this is the 1942 recording, obviously, and I searched high and low for the 1941 performance that Serling had heard that led him to buy the story. But unfortunately, that that is apparently lost. It can't be found anywhere. And I was kind of bummed about that because I thought that that would be even more interesting to hear. But I mean, both... Every performance of The Hitchhiker was performed by Orson Welles, so you'll get – and this was a, a year later, so it's it's good enough, I guess, for our purposes here at Anthology. A couple bits of trivia and, and thoughts on the radio play before we get to it. Um, Orson Welles, he, he's very charismatic in it. It's he's, – he's amazing. And I just want to read this quote that I found that – Orson Welles said to uh, his friend and mentor, uh, Roger Hill, on February 22nd, 1983. But the quote is, Radio is what I love most of all, the wonderful excitement of what could happen in live radio when everything that could go wrong did go wrong. I was making a couple thousand a week, scampering in ambulances from studio to studio, and committing much of what I made to support the Mercury. I wouldn't want to return to this frenetic 20-hour working day years but I miss them uh, because they are so irredeemably gone. And I just like that he had that passion for theater. And, I mean, this guy, he was he was amazing and very talented. And, like, he spent so much of his time uh, in radio, radio dramas that um, I just wanted to share that quote about it. My thoughts about the radio play that you're about to hear are that it had really good production value and it really made me want to seek out more radio dramas of the era. And hearing Ronald Adams tell the story, um, much the way that Nan Adams narrated the episode of The Twilight Zone, it makes it feel very intimate. And I can imagine like listening to this on a cross-country road trip or listening to episodes like this and radio dramas like this on a long car ride and being very unnerved by it and really feeling the desolation of, of the character. And there were some changes that Serling made in adapting it to The Twilight Zone. I'll, I'll say now that uh, the equivalent in the radio play of Nan waking up the service, the guy at the service station, I think that... the and spoiler for the radio play you're about to hear, but um, Ronald wakes the man for food and not for running out of gas or anything. But I, and I, I fully prefer Serling's version of it with Nan waking the guy for gas and being very frantic because it really shows how vulnerable she is a little bit more than what we got from the radio play, I feel. And uh, there's, there's a bit of a, of a, uh, there's a gender reversal with the passenger that Ronald Adams uh, 
picks up and I thought that was that was effective but and and it was still tense but I think that I prefer the uh Twilight Zone adaptation over this and finally I I just love the way that Orson Welles escalates the tension of the story with his voice like it's incredibly powerful and really well done and really shows what an enormous talent Orson Welles is um in this field because he just really commands the the uh the tension and the uh pacing of the story just strictly through his voice it's it's really impressive okay so without further ado here is the radio play um of the hitchhiker from 1942 i'm actually going to go ahead and put it after uh, my pre-recorded outro that way that if you don't want to actually have to sit there and hear it the episode will end as usual for you and then and then go into the radio play so on that note i want to thank you guys for listening and next week on the ep- on the podcast rather um i'm going to be reviewing the twilight zone season 1 episode 17 the fever and i'll have the bonus listener recommended review of seconds the 1966 john frankenheimer film that was recommended by listener greg from spokane washington so look out for that next week and i hope you enjoy the radio play um audio of the hitchhiker from 1942 from suspense uh, performed by orson wells thank you for listening and i'll see you guys next week Thank you for listening to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. You can find more episodes at AnthologyPod.com, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast app. If you'd like to help support the podcast, please take a few minutes to leave a rating and a review on iTunes. The more reviews I get, the higher the show will be ranked in iTunes search results, making it easier for people to discover it and grow the podcast. Of course, you can always email me your thoughts and feelings about the show to matt at obsessiveviewer.com. You can also tweet me at obsessiveviewer, like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod, or you can call and leave me a voicemail at 317-762-6099 for a chance to have it played on the show. If you like what you've heard here, I urge you to check out The Obsessive Viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast I host with my friends Mike and Tiny. Also check out the Obsessive Viewer blog at obsessiveviewer.com where I write movie reviews, TV reviews, and the occasional editorial about the business of entertainment. If you want even more obsessive content in your life, subscribe to the Obsessive Viewer subreddit at r slash obsessiveviewer and check out obsessivebooknerd.com, our sister site for book reviews, author spotlights, and a general celebration of reading. Finally, if you're philosophically curious check out my friend Tiny's side project podcast, The Secular Perspective, which explores the concepts of faith, religion, and existence from the perspective of secular hosts. You can find that at thesecularperspective.com. Once again, thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Columbia Network takes pleasure in bringing you Suspense. Suspense. 
Columbia's parade of outstanding thrillers, produced and directed by William Spear and scored by Bernard Herrmann. The notable melodramas from stage and screen, fiction and radio, presented each week to bring you to the edge of your chair, to keep you in suspense. Good evening. This is Orson Welles. And very happy I am to be back in the United States and back on the Columbia Network. Even for so short a visit as this one. Back with old friends like Johnny Dietz, who is tonight's director, and Bernard Herman. The Mercury Theater presented tonight's radio play for the first time last year. We came right out then and hailed it as a classic of the medium. Nobody argued the point. A lot of people asked us to do it again, so it's gratifying to get the chance now and to find a favorite of ours in this distinguished anthology of spook shows. Personally, I've never met anybody who didn't like a good ghost story, but I know a lot of people who think there are a lot of people who don't like a good ghost story. For the benefit of these, at least, I go on record at the outset of this evening's entertainment with a sober assurance that although blood may be curdled on this program, none will be spilt. There's no shooting, knifing, throttling, axing, or poisoning here. No clanking chains, no cobwebs, no bony and or hairy hands appearing from secret panels or, better yet, bedroom curtains. If it's any part of that dear old phosphorescent foolishness that people who don't like ghost stories don't like, then again, I promise you, we haven't got it. Not tonight. What we do have is a thriller. It's half as good as we think it is. You can call it a shocker. It's already been called a real Orson Welles story. Now, frankly, I don't know what this means. I've been on the air directing and acting in my own shows for quite a while now, and I don't suppose I've done more than half a dozen thrillers in all that time. Honestly, I don't think even that many, but it seems I do have a reputation for the uncanny. Quite possibly, a little escapade of mine involving a couple of planets, which shall be nameless, is responsible. Doesn't really matter. Don't think I disapprove of thrillers. I don't. A story doesn't have to appeal to the heart. It can also appeal to the spine. Sometimes you want your heart to be warmed, and sometimes you want your spine to tingle. The tingling, it's to be hoped, will be quite audible as you listen tonight to The Hitchhiker. That's the name of our story, The Hitchhiker. Route 66, just west of Gallup, New Mexico. If I tell it, perhaps it'll help me. Keep me from going, going crazy. I've got to tell this quickly. I'm not crazy now. I feel perfectly well, except that I'm running a slight temperature. My name is Ronald Adams. I'm 36 years of age. Unmarried, tall, dark, with a black mustache. I drive a 1940 Buick license number 6Y175189. I was born in Brooklyn. All this I know. I know that I'm at this moment perfectly sane. That it's not me who's gone mad. It's something else. Something utterly beyond my control. I've got to speak quickly. At any minute, the link may break. This may be the last thing I ever tell on Earth. 
the last night I ever see the stars. Six days ago, I left Brooklyn to drive to California. Goodbye, son. Good luck to you, my boy. Goodbye, mother. Here, give me a kiss. Here, I'll go. I'll come out with you to the car. Oh, no, it's raining. Stay here at the door. Oh. Hey, what's this? Tears? I thought you'd promise me you wouldn't cry. Oh, I know, dear. I, I'm sorry. But I I do hate to see oh, you. I'll be back. It'll only be the, on the course three months. Oh, it isn't that. It's, it's just the trip. Ronald, I wish you weren't driving. Oh, Mother, there you go again. People do it every day. I know, but you'll be careful, won't you? Promise me you'll be extra careful. Don't fall asleep or drive fast or pick up any strangers on the road. Oh, gosh. I think I was still 17 here, you two. Oh, and why? I mean, as soon as you get to Hollywood, won't you, son? Of course I will. Don't you worry. It's only going to happen. It's just eight days of perfectly simple driving on smooth, decent, civilized roads. With a hot dog or a hamburger stand every ten miles. I was in fine spirits. The drive ahead of me, even the loneliness seemed like a lark. I reckoned without him. Crossing Brooklyn Bridge that morning in the rain, I saw a man leaning against the cables. He seemed to be waiting for a lift. There were spots of fresh rain on his shoulders. He was carrying a cheap overnight bag in one hand. He was thin, nondescript, with a cap pulled down over his eyes. I would have forgotten him completely, except that just an hour later, while crossing the Pulaski Skyway over the Jersey Flats, I saw him again. At least, he looked like the same person. He was standing now with one thumb pointing west. I couldn't figure out how he got there, but I thought probably one of those fast trucks had picked him up, beat me to the Skyway and let him off. I didn't stop for him. And late that night, I saw him again. It's on the new Pennsylvania turnpike between Harrisburg and Pittsburgh. It's 265 miles long with a very high speed limit. I was just slowing down for one of the tunnels. When I saw him, standing under an arc light by the side of the road, I seen quite distinctly the bag, the cap, even the spots of fresh rain scattered over his shoulders. He halluded me this Hello! Hello! Stepped on the gas like a shot. That's lonely country through the Alleghenies, and I had no intention of stopping. Besides the coincidences, or whatever it was, neither the Willies. Stopped at the next gas station. Uh, fill her up. Certainly, sir. Check your oil, sir? No, thanks. Nice night, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> it hasn't been raining here recently, has it? Not a drop of rain all away. Oh? Oh, I, I suppose that doesn't done your business any harm. Oh, people drive through here all kinds of weather. Mostly business, you know. 
There aren't many pleasure cars out on the turnpike this season of the year. I suppose not. What, uh, uh, uh what about hitchhikers? <laughs> hitchhikers here? What's the matter? Don't you ever see any? Not much. If we did, it'd be a sight for sore eyes. Why? Oh, guy'd be a fool who started out to hitch rides on this road. Look at it. Then you've never seen anybody? No. Maybe they get the lift before the turnpike starts. I mean, you know, just before the toll house. But then it'd be a mighty long ride. Most cars wouldn't want to pick up a guy for that long a ride. And you know, this is pretty lonesome country here. Mountains and woods. You ain't seen anybody like that, have you? Uh, no. Oh, no, not, not at all. I was just uh, a technical question. I <laughs> see. Well, that'll be just a dollar forty-nine with the tax. Thing gradually passed through my mind a sheer coincidence. I had a good night's sleep in Pittsburgh. I didn't think about the man all next day until. Just outside of Zanesville, Ohio, I saw him again. It was a bright, sunshiny afternoon. The peaceful Ohio fields, brown with the autumn stubble, lay dreaming in the golden light. I was driving slowly, drinking it in, when the road suddenly ended in a detour. In front of the barrier, he was standing. Now let me explain about his appearance before I go on. I repeat, there was nothing sinister about him. He was as drab as a mud fence, or was his attitude menacing. He merely stood there, waiting, almost drooping a little, with a cheap overnight bag in his hand. He looked as though he'd been waiting there for hours. And he looked up. He hailed me. He started to walk forward. Hello? 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 No, uh, not just now, sorry. Oh, in California? No, not today. The other way. Going to New York. Sorry. After I got the car back on the road again, I felt like Yet the thought of <clears throat> picking him up, of having him sit beside me, was somehow unbearable. At the same time, I felt more than ever unspeakably alone. After hour went by, fields, the towns ticked off one by one. The light changed. I knew now that I was going to see him again. And though I dreaded the sight, I caught myself searching the side of the road, waiting for him to appear. sandwiches and pop here, don't you? Yeah, we do in the daytime. But we're closed up now for the I know, but I was wondering if you could possibly have a cup of coffee, black coffee, just... No, not this time of night, mister. My wife's a cook. Don't shut the door, please. Listen, just a minute ago... uh, (laughs) Just a minute ago, there was a man standing here right beside the stand, a suspicious-looking man. I I don't mean to disturb it. And you see, I was driving along when I just happened to look, and there he was. How's he doing? Or nothing. You've been taking a nip, that's what you've been doing. Now, why do you wait before I call our sheriff folks? 
got into the car again and drove on slowly. It's beginning to hate the car. If I could have found a place to stop, to rest a little. I was in the Ozark Mountains of Missouri now. A few resort places there were closed, only an occasional log cabin, seemingly deserted. That's all that broke the monotony of the wild, wooded landscape. I had seen him at that roadside stand. I knew I'd see him again. Maybe at the next turn of the road. I knew that when I saw him next, I would run him down. next afternoon. I stopped a car at a sleepy little junction just across the border into Oklahoma to let a train pass by. When he appeared across the tracks, leaning against a telephone pole. Perfectly airless, dry day. The red clay of Oklahoma was baking under the southwestern sun. Yet there were spots of fresh rain on his shoulders. I couldn't stand that. Without thinking blindly, I started the car across the tracks. He didn't look up at me. He was staring at the ground. I stepped on the gas car, bringing the wheel sharply toward him. I could hear the train in the distance now, but I didn't care. And something went wrong with the car. The train was coming closer. I could hear its bell ringing and the cry of its whistle. Still, he stood there. And now I knew that he was beckoning, beckoning me to my death. Yeah. I frustrated him that time. The starter worked at last. I managed to back up. When the train passed, he was gone. I was all alone in the hot, dry afternoon. After that, I knew I had to do something. I didn't know who this man was or what he wanted of me. I only knew that from now on, I mustn't let myself alone on the road for one minute. Uh, hello there. Like a ride? Well, what do you think? How far are you going? Oh, uh, well, where do you want to go? Amarillo, Texas. I'll drive you there. Gee. Uh, you mind if I take off my shoes? My dogs are killing me. Go right ahead. Oh, gee, what a break this is. hitchhike much? Sure, only it's tough sometimes in these great open spaces to get the break. Uh, I should think it would be, though. I'll bet you get a good pickup in a fast car. If you did, you could get places faster than, say, another person in another car, couldn't you? I don't get you. Well, take me, for instance. Suppose I'm I'm driving across the country, say, at a nice steady clip about 45 miles an hour. Uh, couldn't, couldn't a girl like you just standing beside the road waiting for a list beat me to town... Or any town, provided she got picked up every time in a car doing from 65 to 70 miles an hour? I don't know. What difference does it make? Oh, 
no difference. It's just a crazy idea I have sitting here in the car. <laughs> Imagine spending your time in a swell car thinking of things like that. What would you do instead? What would I do? If I was a good-looking fellow like yourself? Why, I just enjoy myself every minute of the time. I'd sit back and, and relax. What if I saw a good-looking girl along the side of the road? Hey, look out! Did you see a See who? A man standing beside the barbed wire fence. Oh, I didn't see anybody. I, it wasn't nothing but a bunch of cows and, and a wire fence. No? What did you think you was doing? Trying to run into the barbed wire fence? a man there, I tell you. A thin gray man with an overnight bag in his hand. And I, I was trying to run him down. Run him down? Kill him? Say so you didn't see him back there? You sure? I didn't see a soul. As far watch as I can Watch for him the next time and keep watching. Keep your eyes peeled on the road. He'll turn up again. Ready any minute. There. What's that? the store work. I, I'm getting out of here. See him that time? No, I didn't see him that time. And personally, mister, I don't expect never to see him. All I want to do is go on living. I don't see how I will very long driving with you. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't... I, I don't know what came over me, but please don't go. So if you'll excuse me... You can't go. Listen, how would you like to go to California? I'll drive you to California. Seeing pink elephants all the way? No, thanks. Uh-uh. Thanks just the same. Listen, please, just... Just one minute, please. You know what I think you need, big boy? Not a girlfriend. Just a good dose of sleep. Please. There. I got it now. No, you can't go. Please. Come Your back. hands off me. Do you hear me? Your hands off me. She ran from me. As though I were a monster. A few minutes later, I saw a passing truck pick her up. I knew then that I was utterly alone. It was in the heart of the great Texas prairies. There wasn't a car on the road after the truck went by. I tried to figure out what to do. I'd get hold of myself. I could find a place to rest, or even if I could sleep right here in the car for a few hours along the side of the road. Getting my winter overcoat out of the back seat to use as a blanket when I saw him coming toward me. Emerging from the herd of moving steer. Hello! Maybe I should have spoken to him then. Fought it out then and there. For now he began to be everywhere. Wherever I stopped, even for a moment, for gas, for oil, for... Drink a pop, a cup of coffee, sandwich. He was there. I saw him standing outside the auto camp in Amarillo that night when I dared to slow down. He was sitting near the drinking fountain, a little camping spot just inside the border of New Mexico. He was waiting for me outside the Navajo Reservation where I stopped to check my tires. I saw him in Albuquerque when I bought 20 gallons of gas. I was... I was afraid to stop him. I began to drive faster and faster. I was in, in lunar landscape now. The great arid Mesa country of New Mexico. I drove through it with the indifference of a fly crawling over the face of the moon. 
Now he didn't even wait for me to stop. Unless I drove at 85 miles an hour over those endless roads, he waited for me at every other mile. I see his figure, shadowless, flitting before me, still in the same attitude, over the cold, lifeless ground, flitting over dried-up rivers, over broken stones cast up by old glacial upheavals, flitting in that pure and cloudless air. I was beside myself when I finally reached Gallup, New Mexico this morning. There's an auto camp here. Cold, almost deserted this time of year. I went inside and asked if there was a telephone. I had the feeling that if only I could speak to someone familiar, someone I loved, I could pull myself together. Your call, please. Long distance. Long distance, certainly. This is long distance. I'd like, uh, I'd like to put a, in a call to my home in Brooklyn, New York. I'm Ronald Adams. I'm a, the, the number is Beachwood 200828. Certainly. I will try to get it for you. Albuquerque. New York for Gallup. New York. Gallup, New Mexico, calling Beachwood 20828. I read somewhere that love could banish demons. It's the middle of the morning. I knew Mother would be home. I pictured her tall and white-haired in her crisp house dress, going about her tasks. Be enough, I thought, just to hear the even calmness of her voice. Will you please deposit $3.85 for the first three minutes? When you have deposited a dollar and a half, will you wait until I have collected the money? All right, deposit another dollar and a half. deposit the remaining 85 cents. Ready with Brooklyn. Go ahead, please. Hello? hello? Mrs. Adams' residence. Hello, hello, Mother. This is Mrs. Adams' residence. Who is it you wish to speak to, please? What? Who is this? This is Mrs. Winnie. Mrs. Winnie? I, I don't know any Mrs. Winnie. Is this Beachwood 208828? Yes. Uh, where, where's my mother? Where's Mrs. Adams? Mrs. Adams is not at home. She's still in the hospital. The hospital? Yes. Who the... is this calling, please? Is it a member of the family? Well, what's she in the hospital for? She's been prostrated for five days. Nervous breakdown. But who is Nervous calling? breakdown? Well, my grandmother never was nervous. It's all taken place since the death of her oldest son, Ronald. Death of her... Death of her oldest son, Ronald? 
Hey, what's this? What number is this? This is Beechwood 20828. It's all been very sudden. He was killed just six days ago in an automobile accident on the Brooklyn Bridge. Your three minutes are up, sir. Your three minutes are up, sir. Your three minutes are up, sir. And so... So I'm sitting here in this deserted auto camp in Gallup, New Mexico. I'm trying to think. Trying to get hold of myself. Otherwise, I... I'm going to go crazy. Outside, it's night. The vast, soulless night of New Mexico. A million stars are in the sky. Ahead of me stretch a thousand miles of empty mesa. Mountains. Prairies. Desert. Somewhere among them, he's waiting for me. Somewhere I shall know who he is and who I am. the hitchhiker, and to Orson Welles our considerable thanks for his playing of the title role. Mr. Welles, help wanted. Men, women, and children. Nature of work, hard, monotonous, back-breaking labor. Hours, 75 a week minimum. Pay, few cents an hour. Added inducement, two meals a day, including several ounces of bad bread and a cup of thin soup. Don't delay. Apply at once. How'd you respond to a want ad like that, Mr. and Mrs. American working man and woman? You'd laugh, wouldn't you, and throw the paper in the trash basket. Dismiss the whole advertisement as some kind of a joke, but believe me, it's no joke. It's a simple statement of the working conditions that exist today in Nazi Germany and the conquered countries under Nazi rule. It's also an exact statement of the working conditions that will be imposed on you and every member of your family if the Nazis win this war. You yourself personally can stop them from winning, as you know. You don't have to give up your well-paid job to do it. You needn't have to be a soldier or a sailor or an airman or a nurse or a war worker to ensure American victory. Uncle Sam doesn't ask plain, ordinary, hard-working citizens like you to give him anything. All he asks, all this he does ask very seriously and very urgently, is that you loan him ten cents out of every dollar you make. That's all there is to it. Lend Uncle Sam a dime to win this war. And he'll pay you back with interest when he's won it. The easiest, most convenient way to lend him these dimes is to enroll in the payroll savings plan. Just tell your boss to deduct ten cents from every dollar he pays you and lend it to Uncle Sam in your name. Sign up for this simple savings plan today and when victory comes, you'll have war bonds in your pockets instead of Axis bonds on your wrists. Suspense will be heard again two weeks from tonight. Next Wednesday night, September 9th, the Columbia Broadcasting System will present over many of these stations at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Wartime an address by W. Averill Harriman, United States Land Lease Administrator in London. 
Mr. Harriman, as the personal representative of the President of the United States, attended the Moscow conferences between Winston Churchill and Joseph Stalin. Next Wednesday's broadcast will be Mr. Harriman's first public address since his return to this country. Suspense is produced and directed by William Spear. John Dietz was our guest director this evening. Tonight's radio drama was written by Lucille Fletcher. The original score was by Bernard Herrmann. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System.